Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather from Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. March 4th, we are expecting a dramatic warm-up for the central and eastern United States. Checking out the latest USDA extended weather forecast, Brad Rippey. Significantly above normal temperatures expected for the eastern half of the country. However, in time, we'll see some cooler air settling into the west. So we expect below normal temperatures from the 27th through March 4th in the western U.S., primarily west of the Rockies. With that temperature pattern, we do expect to see near or above normal temperatures across much of the country. The great Greatest likelihood for wetter than normal conditions will be across the northern half of the U.S. That could be some good news for some of these snow drought areas in the northern United States. Meanwhile, drier than normal conditions expected in a small area of the south extending from southern California to the southern plains. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. There's no question we're going to be paying more attention to climate no matter who's elected. Dan Sumner was a USDA Assistant Secretary of Economics in the early 90s. Today, an economics professor at UC Davis, part of a roundtable of former chief economists at the Ag Outlook Forum. Whether or not we do it uh, through the sort of programs we've got now, that's that's not as obvious to me. Uh, I do think over this same period of time, as Bob points out, uh, uh, Budgets are, are going to have to matter to somebody sometime, you'd think. So, um, though I've been wrong about that for the last decade, so may, maybe for the next decade as well. Uh, but there's no question we're going to do more on climate. Uh, w- what we aren't doing enough of, we do some, but not enough of, is uh, taking seriously sponsoring serious R&D. Uh, in agriculture related to climate things. And, and uh, I'd say rather than subsidies for certain practices now, which we seem to be enamored by, and I understand uh, it's popular to give people subsidies. Uh, I'm hesitant uh, sitting at a university saying subsidize more research because it sounds like I'm just saying subsidize. So give it to everybody but Davis. I don't care. But, but I do think, no, I do care. Robert Thompson is a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois, was an assistant secretary of economics in the 80s. We're underinvesting in research, uh, but I would particularly flag adaptation. Uh, there's lots of concern about agriculture uh, reducing its contributions to greenhouse gas generation and a lot of research going on on how to how agriculture, agriculture can help in that sense. But we've got to get on with the job of adaptation because with increased frequency of extreme climatic events, with the migration of growing seasons a few degrees away from the equator in both the northern and southern hemispheres, uh, we're going to have to, if we don't have adaptive research, we're not going to sustain present productivity levels. And the other one area I'm particularly concerned about is with the increasing concern of the Europeans of putting uh, import duties or carbon import duties on anything coming in. Yeah, it's just steel today, but agriculture, they've got agriculture in mind and we'd better get international agreement on how we're going to measure the stuff. We don't have international agreement on how we measure with uh, aviation or with renewable aviation fuels, and that's already causing problems. And without a functioning uh, judiciary in the WTO, uh, we're going to have a lot of cases coming down the pike if we don't have agreement on how we're going to measure carbon content. 
Also on the panel, former chief economist Joe Glauber and Rob Johansson, who's now with the American Sugar Alliance. So Chevron deference gives, uh, if there's ambiguity in a in a in a, a law, the agency implementing the regulation can interpret it in, in a way that they think reflects congressional intent um, versus being strictly uh, following uh, the letter of the, the the act, if you will. And, um, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I worked on Chevron deference a lot more with respect to air quality rules um, and EPA's interpretation of it. And so I think it'll have big implications on how it gets how it turns out, but I don't, I don't have a, an opinion one way or another at this point. Highlights from USDA's Ag Outlook Forum. It's Agriculture Today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. So today we're here to talk about contracts in livestock marketing. Farm Bureau livestock economist Barrett Nelson. Contracting exists in all sectors of meat proteins. The mechanics are a little bit different, and they operate sometimes more heavily in one sector than another. Cattle is a little bit different from hogs and poultry, and that's where my deepest expertise lies. But if we compare cattle to hogs and poultry, the biggest difference is that hogs and poultry both have vertical integration whereas the cattle sector does not. Now, what I mean by this is with hogs and poultry contracts, the integrator typically owns the animals. The integrator provides feed, veterinary care. The farmer typically supplies labor, management, with the idea of creating the product in the most efficient way possible. The cattle industry does not use vertical integration. Now, this means that there's contracting in a slightly different way, but still ever-present. So when we have contracting, you know, in the cattle industry, these are sometimes called alternative marketing arrangements or AMAs. We see heavier contracting. That data wasn't publicly available to see what was happening, the number of contracts, the prices, the elements in which they move. And so there was a lot of questions regarding transparency, especially in meatpacking. So this is different from pork and poultry as an aggregate. In pork, about 70% of U.S. pork is produced under some form of a contract. In the poultry sector, we see a higher degree yet, with closer to 75 or 85% of production occurring under some kind of contract. Now, the methods in terms of these contracts vary by commodity, geographical region, and the parties involved. The remainder of these animals are marketed on negotiated cash trade or at an auction. Geographic location of a market a farmer sells in has a great deal to do with how these animals are marketed. For example, back at our farm in North Dakota, 70 to even 90% of the cattle might be negotiated or may be sold on negotiated cash trade on a given day. Whereas if we hop across the country down to Texas, we might see as little as 5% sold on negotiated cash trade, with the other 95% being sold under AMAs or contract agreement. This leads us in to kind of our historical argument. The four largest packing companies in the country control about 85% of the market share. Packing concentration has limited competition between packers. It is arguable that this has resulted in lower prices and given the packer an advantage. The debate regarding policy in this area focuses largely on the use of contracts to adjust captive supply. Now, in this sector, captive supply describes the cattle that a packer has contracted under AMAs. Contracted and packer-fed cattle can shrink the cash market. The more contracts that are offered or active, the fewer cattle are being sold on negotiated cash trade. So a smaller cash market then results in a higher degree of volatility in the cash market. And as we know, with market volatility, that price movement, there's somebody on both sides of a market, a buyer and a seller. And depending on 
which side you fall on, sometimes that volatility is a good thing, and sometimes it can be a bad thing. Now, as I brought up earlier, the U.S. cattle industry is largely regional, and that region depends largely on how the, the farmer sells his cattle. This means that policy solutions in this space are not a one-size-fits-all. The cost of capital is going up, and that has the potential, much like the 80s, to create a liquidity problem. We're not talking about the interest to gross revenue ratios right now the way that we did in the 80s. And as I've talked to bank presidents that started their careers in 1982, that is the first place their minds go, is that they haven't heard those ratios since the 80s. We have to unite and work together on this. Solutions to concentration and competition have to be a unifying concept in order to keep our farmers farming and keep the U.S. livestock sector a competitor in both our domestic and global markets. Because once we lose that market share, it is a very difficult road to getting it back. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. The Risk Management Agency of the USDA will set the projected insurance prices for 2024 based on the settlement prices for the December and November futures contracts for corn and soybeans, respectively, through the month of February. University of Illinois ag economist Nick Paulson with key information on crop insurance decisions for 2024. Market volatility measures, which indicate the amount of price variability the market is anticipating between now and harvest time, are also incorporated through the volatility factors used to determine insurance premiums each year. Higher volatility will lead to higher premiums and vice versa. The December 2024 corn futures contract has had an average settlement price of $4.71 per bushel. The November 2024 soybean contract has averaged $11.68 per bushel. Those prices will continue to change until being finalized at the end of February. However, projected prices at those levels would represent significant declines from the projected prices in 2023. Last year, the projected price for corn was $5.91. A projected price for corn of $4.71 in this year would represent a decline of about 20%. A projected price for soybeans of $11.68 per bushel would represent a decline of about 15% from the $13.76 projected price in 2023. So what does this mean for crop insurance in 2024? Well, since the value or liability that can be insured using revenue or yield policies is proportional to the value or price of the crop, this means that insurance guarantees in 2024 will be lower on a per acre basis if you purchase the same policy type as you did last year. As an example, let's take a farmer with a 200 bushel per acre trend-adjusted APH yield for corn. If the farmer purchases an 85% revenue protection policy, they would be paying for a minimum revenue guarantee of about $1,000 per acre using the 2023 price, which is the product of the 85% coverage level, the 200 bushel trend-adjusted APH yield, and that $5.91 price from last year. For 2024, that same policy with a projected price for corn of 471 would imply a revenue guarantee of just over $800 per acre, the product of the 85% coverage level, 200 bushel yield, and that lower $4.71 price. That is a 20% decline in the revenue guarantee for that same policy compared to last year due simply to that 20% decline in the projected price. Similarly, policies for soybeans will experience a 15% decline in guarantees for any given policy relative to last year based on that 15% drop in the projected price that we're looking at now. On the positive side, the lower prices resulting in lower insurance guarantees will also have the effect of reducing premium costs compared with last year. In the FarmDoc Daily article from February 13th, we illustrated some of the premium cost reductions for a couple of examples in Illinois. 
Premium estimates for revenue protection on corn in 2024 were estimated to be around 18% lower than in 2023. Premium estimates for revenue protection on soybeans in 2024 were estimated to be in the range of 10 to 12% lower than what was paid last year for the same policies. These premium savings relative to last year could provide some welcome relief given the much lower return projections that we're looking at in 2024 due to the lower commodity prices and continued high production costs. However, because of the lower insurance guarantees implied by those lower insurance prices and the tight margin environment currently expected for 2024, producers may also want to consider reallocating some of those savings, increasing their total insurance coverage. For some producers, that could mean increasing their coverage level on their individual insurance plan, such as RP. For others, it may mean taking a closer look at some of the supplemental area-based plans that are available. These include the supplemental and enhanced coverage options, referred to as SCO and ECO, which can be added to an individual plan of insurance to provide some additional county-based coverage. It's Agriculture Today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. But I think there's lots of good science that will help us in agriculture dealing, and that's a different topic, And but that, that's where I think we could do a lot more. Dan Sumner is with UC Davis. But he was part of a recent roundtable of former chief economist at USDA's Ag Outlook Forum looking at the ag landscape. And frankly, it doesn't have to be USDA. It could be the National Science Foundation or some someplace else. Uh, but serious, serious work on, on big-scale climate projects are pretty important for food and agriculture. Joe Glauber was chief economist between 2008 and 2014. Yeah, I, I guess I would echo with that. I mean, I think it's clearly uh, more work needs to be done. You know, the climate has to be addressed. And, um, you know, the, the road the U.S. is going down is the subsidized road that is trying to entice behavior with, with carrots rather than sticks. Um, I think the, you know, if the international community talks a lot, or international organizations talk a lot about repurposing support, taking it away from, you know, trade distorting measures and putting it into more climate or, or research and development. The problem is, I think here in the U.S., the, it has been, yeah, we like climate programs, but we like them on top of the suite of price and income support programs. And we don't want to give up those things either. And so I think that's where the budget thing really comes into hand. I mean, I, I think obviously there's, a lot more work can be done on the research side. I I'll shout out to the climate office that worked for me and Bill Hohenstein's group. I mean, they did a lot of that stuff, uh, you know, long before 2009. But certainly when, when the legislation came through, we were looking at, at boy, we're going to have to construct all these programs. And, and I think, thankfully, they've continued to look at that. That's helped, I think, the secretary design some of these programs. But, um, yeah, we're not really talking about repurposing. We're talking about adding more, and I don't think there's a budget for that. Rob Johansson was chief economist for USDA from 2014 through 2020. Setting up a program or uh, for agriculture um, on climate, as as Bill's group has pointed out, is, is complicated. And, um, you know, as you know from the Food and Ag Climate Alliance that, um, that you helped spearhead, um, uh, there's a lot of great principles there in terms of ag programs, uh, in terms of making sure it's um, incentive voluntary based markets. Um, but as you know, I'm sure all the economists up here would agree that you know regulations ultimately drive the price of carbon, and um, you know that that doesn't mix well with farm policy. Um, 
Uh, I'll just say that I think uh, on this front, what we're going to hear mo- a lot about, in addition to providing more um, funds for R&D on, uh, on ways to make crops and, and livestock more resilient to climate change is, is on water economics. I've been saying that for a long time, and I think uh, the, the issues facing American agriculture uh, and water availability uh, right now are um, just starting, and we're seeing horrible drought right now in, in Texas that those growers are not getting access to irrigation water that should be provided through the, the Rio Grande Treaty with Mexico. Um, and ultimately, that's just one issue. I mean, there, there going to be, I mean, as Dan can probably point out, and the California water issues, whether it's too much or too little, are huge. Um, and I just think that, um, from my personal perspective, that, that agriculture needs more to, you know, to encourage more positions in, in terms of uh, water economists uh, related to agriculture going forward. It's Agriculture Today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. Competition is at the very center of everything that happens in the cattle arena from top to bottom. South Dakota's cell barn operator and president of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, Justin Tupper. A free market system only works with true and transparent price discovery and competition at all levels. I'm going to talk about the things that I know about it. We're losing those small auction markets in rural America all over. Where I grew up in Kimball, there were 11 sale barns in a 100-mile radius of me in 1991. That same 100-mile radius today, there's five left. So it's an alarming rate at how fast that's going. And why is that important? When we have 11 sale barns competing each and every day for those producers, that's what's going to keep the price as high as it possibly can be. And that, that works in an up market. It works in a down market. It just means that they work hard to get the producer the largest share of that market that they can. With less competition, uh, there's less incentive to get top dollar. We used to call them, where I'm from there, we'd call them the seed corn cap buyers. Anybody know what I'm talking about if I say a seed corn cap buyer? That would have been the farmers that would have come from Iowa or Nebraska that come into the sale barn to buy one or two loads of cattle put them with theirs, feed them the corn that they raised, and that would create competition and would get us the very best prices for that livestock at that sale, no matter what the market was doing at that time. We were always competing at a high level to get the highest market share that we possibly could. The Ag Census data that just came out showed definite decline of these type operations. Since 2017, we've lost 17% of producers that raised from one to 2,500 head of cattle. Meanwhile, we saw a 6% increase in the operators of 2,500 head and above. And of that 6% increase, that's about 30% of the cattle and calves in the United States. So you can see we're losing the small farm and rancher, we're losing that competitive edge, and it's moving into larger and larger operations. As we move through the livestock chain, the backgrounding, or in some places, a lot of the cattle from our part of the world go to wheat pastures. So they move from the cow-calf operations into backgrounding or stocker operations. In this sector, we've been losing small and medium-sized operations since the 1980s. As Secretary Vilsack said this morning, and according to the Ag Census data, we've lost a half a million farms and ranches. Again, with less people competing, there's less chance to get top dollar and less chance to make sure that the producer gets their market share. We move into the final sector, 
of uh, the livestock sector, finishing farms and feedlots. And there's been a lot of years that we've seen consolidation from these small family farms to bigger corporate family farms or corporate feeding. Again, diminishing competition, consolidating cattle into large groups. The committed cattle are a huge part of that. And, and as we've consolidated the cattle into these large feedlots, corporate feedlots per se, many of those large corporate feedlots have an AMA. And that AMA, part of that AMA is they're committed to one packer. So if they feed 50,000 head, all of them are going to go to one packer. That is a huge advantage to the packer, no matter what the market is. In fact, I think oftentimes the packer doesn't care what the market is. If he knows how many cattle he's going to have and that the, his slaughter facility is going to be full, that's the most important part to him. So by these committed cattle in these corporate feed yards committing to one packer for all of their feed yard, that, that, that loses the competitive edge. And again, we, in, in a free market system, once we've lost that competition, there's nothing left. It's agriculture today. This is Agriculture Today. The annual chicken and eggs report from USDA shows the U.S. December 1 chicken inventory up 1% from a year ago and egg production down slightly. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Bert Nelson says the report comes as nearly all protein sectors, including beef, pork, and lamb, are forecasted for smaller inventories for 2024 and beyond. And if we take a look at some of USDA's census data, it's important to think about this because we have a 6.9% decline in the number of farms. And as we look at this, poultry is the one sector that has some forecasted growth, but it still faces a lot of headwinds like high path avian influenza. Despite the slowdown in HPAI, there were still 11.4 million birds affected in December and a little over 2 million birds in January. Nelson says the report forecast increased production in 2024. Total table egg production is forecast to be about 96 billion eggs. Now this is up 1.4% from 23. So seeing a little bit of a production increase for the upcoming year. Prices are projected to average $1.83 a dozen. This is actually down about $0.10. The December 1st chicken inventory, excluding commercial broilers, was $523 million. This is up about 1%. So there's where we kind of see some of that growth. Nelson says the report, along with data from the 2022 Census of Agriculture, highlights the importance of the next farm bill. The farm bill is a safety net that helps remove some of that risk. It keeps our farmers farming and continuing to the next generation. When we are facing the decrease in the number of farms and the increasing average age of a farmer, this safety net is imperative to not just secure food for our nation and world, but to secure an affordable food supply. Keeping our farmers farming ultimately results in better prices for our consumers at the grocery store. Michael Clements, Washington. Let's go from poultry to U.S. beef and the opportunity for exports. John Harreth, Reports. The USDA Foreign Agricultural Service is leading a trade mission to Angola. And with support of the Beef Checkoff Program, U.S. Meat Export Federation Africa Representative Matt Copeland is participating. Copeland says that while Angola has its share of economic challenges, its demand for U.S. red meat products is well positioned for growth. Always wonderfully exciting to partner with FAS on an agribusiness trade mission like this. From our side, Angola is an important market. It has gone through some challenges. But in terms of developed customer base, developed importer base, and people that we already know and trust and have trading histories with, there are a few in that market who have been incumbent there for quite a long time. They have a wide disparity in terms of wealth. There are certainly a lot of folk who can afford some of the best beef in the world. 
and that obviously is us targeting premium restaurants, premium hotels. But the other side of it is there is certainly a need for nutrition. There is some buffalo meat from India. The variety meats are there. And traditionally, when they are there, it's important for us to take the American product to that market. It's more consistent, higher quality, and it's more reliable. And obviously, it serves that nation in making sure they can provide better nutrition. USDA's new Regional Agricultural Promotion Program, which will come online later this year, specifically prioritizes Africa. And Copeland says this could help build momentum in a developing market like Angola. With the Momentum RAPP funding offers, we can go into a market like that and educate to a different degree, certainly, and then you get to start to shift the consumer mindset. One, towards one of the best and most reliable cold chain supply systems in the world, and secondly, to unbelievable, sustainable, consistent quality. And we can support that message over a longer period of time and impress upon the minds of the local folk just how important including some of these products in their diet will be. I'm John Harris. It's Agriculture Today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. The USDA is investing another half a billion dollars to expand efforts to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires. This will continue our work uh, in terms of hazardous fuel reduction, uh, prescribed burn, and other treatments. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack telling reporters Tuesday it's all part of a plan to help 21 selected landscape areas protect themselves against wildfires. But he said part of that $500 million new investment will be for a new program. This is uh, allowing us to begin to expand beyond the 21 priority areas into areas which we refer to as the Wildland Urban Interface, or WUI. And this is going to allow us to help build local uh, capacity to provide tools and resources Uh, so that we can uh, provide those communities with assistance and help uh, to reduce uh, the risk of fire. California's Natural Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot called the expanded investments truly a game changer. Gary Crawford, Washington.